President Biden is coming to Chicago to talk about COVID vaccinations in the week ahead. And former President Barack Obama will also be in town for the groundbreaking of the Obama Presidential Center. And I'll talk with Cranes reporters A.D. Quigg and Danny Ecker about commercial real estate in the Fulton Market District and the re-election outlook for Cook County Assessor Fritz Kagey. The biggest thing that is going to be in the way of any challenger to Kagey, in my opinion, is that buildings don't vote. I mean, that's kind of the... <laughs> Right. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, September 27th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Cranes reporters Danny Ecker and A.D. Quigg here to talk about stories of the week and stories that you both have cooking. Let's see. Danny, let's start with you. So a local supply chain company that got its start helping McDonald's with deliveries is close to a deal to head to the Fulton Market area, which would make them much closer to McDonald's headquarters and could potentially bring many, many jobs downtown. Tell me about this. Yeah, so Javi Group. I guess not necessarily a household name for everybody, but this is a company that handles a lot of supply chain stuff for McDonald's. They have been based in Downers Grove for very a very long time, and they are likely going to be signing a lease to move their headquarters from Downers Grove to Fulton Market. It's funny, when, when McDonald's signed on to move to Fulton Market, there was this theory by other developers and expectation that there were a bunch of vendors that you know, were in the McDonald's orbit, and that's why they were located in the western suburbs. And they were all going to come downtown. There was, I mean, Sterling Bay even built one of their office buildings at 210 North Carpenter. They, they called it a vendor village. That was, that was how they framed it to City Hall. Hmm. They ended up not having any vendors of McDonald's in that building, but now actually at another Sterling Bay building, they're going to have Javi Group most likely here. So, you know, it sort of shows uh, that, that that expectation was right, at least a little bit. And more importantly, this is a page out of the pre-pandemic parade of companies moving from the suburbs downtown. That's what's so significant here is if you're wondering about are companies still going to want to make this move downtown, here you go. You know, this is a great example of a company saying, and, and we don't know you know, the thought behind it, whether it's all about, well, we just want to be close to McDonald's and maybe it wasn't really driven by what was driving everything before the pandemic, which was we want to be close to young people that want to live and work downtown. But this is a really, really positive sign for downtown office landlords that are grappling with really high vacancy um, and also just for downtown overall. I mean, there's certainly still questions about What's the, the busyness of downtown going to be like um, over the next few years? And, and you need a lot of companies making moves like this to, uh, to support all the other businesses downtown and make the central business district a central business district. 
And there seems to have been what feels like a little flurry of activity just lately in Fulton Market with other leases that have been happening. Uh, I think it was Hazel Technologies just maybe a week or two ago. And then this announcement about the Guinness Brewery, that's kind of an interesting play there too. I keep telling people there's Fulton Market and then there's everything else. That's what's going on downtown right now in real estate. Yeah. Part of it is that there's so much available space, these new buildings that were just built in Fulton Market. But, you know, companies like these new buildings... And if you have a company that is either has an expiration coming up or a termination option on their lease, they're probably saying to themselves, okay, do we need this much space? And if we don't, can we take a little less space and upgrade our building? And can we move to a newer building? And that's what Fulton Market offers. And there's just great opportunities to, to lease space there. And of course, there are more amenities. And I'm, I'm hearing this more and more from, from brokers I talk to and from companies they have to be able to make the case to their employees that you want to come to the office. It's not just, hey, you know, we feel like we're, we work together better in person. It's, we need to make the case that you're going to want to be here. And it's not just checking the boxes of amenities. It's, we need a really cool space in a really cool location. And that's what Fulton Market is. And obviously with the deals like this Guinness deal, um, that's that's going to come together to put, uh, make a brewery and tap room really right in the heart of Fulton Market. That's another amenity for companies that are going there that say, hey, come work for us. We're in a pretty cool space. It's new, it's fresh, and you're going to be in an area that's you know got a lot going on at a time when maybe some other parts of downtown don't. Of course, you and I have talked a lot about suburban offices and just kind of the difference between suburban and city office leasing, what's what's going on and kind of the activity in both. What kind of space would Javi be leaving behind or how much space? That's a good point. So they're they're shrinking a little bit. They've got 150,000 square feet at what is a really nice building. It's actually the former Sarah Lee headquarters um, in Downers Grove. And that's what is also particularly interesting is this is a building that has been recently renovated. It's located, you know, in a, in a easy to get to spot. It's the type of suburban building that actually has been doing really well for the past few years and is expected to do well. So theoretically, the owners of that building, which only bought it two years ago, won't have a very difficult time leasing it up. But to see another prominent name a headquarters leave the suburbs and go downtown again, that's certainly counter to this narrative that a lot of uh, suburban landlords are hoping would come to fruition, still hope comes to fruition, which is that millennials have moved to the suburbs during COVID in greater numbers and that's going to lift the office market. There's going to be far more people in the suburbs that want to work in the suburbs. And they're hoping that was going to be a savior to some extent for what's been a pretty soft suburban market for years. This is one of those cases that makes you say, mm, there's some doubts about whether that's going to really come come true. Indeed. Well, A.D., let's keep the commercial real estate conversation going and just the real estate conversation. You've been writing about uh, Cook County Assessor Fritz Kage, uh, in particular how he ran and was elected on this idea of being a reformer. And now it's coming up time. He'll face voters again in 2022. Um, so what have you learned at this point about Kage's support from other elected leaders and maybe his his approach this time around to his campaign? So last time, 2018, a full lifetime ago, yeah. Fritz was running as an outsider. He rode this insane wave of controversy that plagued former assessor Joe Barrios. It was a big Chicago Tribune investigation that basically found that commercial buildings were being under-assessed. 
So the value was assessed lower than it should have been, which was a benefit for landlords at tax time and hurt homeowners. So he basically said, I'm going to run, I'm going to fix it. I'm your guy. And won pretty handily, even though Joe Barrios was the head of the Cook County Democratic Party, had tons of support from other folks in the party, had been in office for several years, was a relatively well-known name. I mean, he was an incumbent and he lost. And reformers have done particularly well in the past few years, including Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who rode on the wave of all these federal indictments. But now Fritz has to stand on his own two feet. He's been there for three years now. And he has to say, here's what I did to live up to the promises that I ran on. And some of those were very easy to accomplish. It was like, I'm not going to hire my kids. Well, he made a joke about it, right? Like he, <laughs> it's like they're too young to hire anyway or something. Yes, they, they were They were very young at the time. They were in middle school, probably. But Bar- Barrios was known for hiring relatives and there were friends in the office. And the other one was, I'm not going to take any money from property tax attorneys or appraisers. There was an assumed quid pro quo, and he was able to do that because he was a a money manager before he ran for office. Had a lot of personal wealth, lended his campaign $2.3 million. But now he's in. He's an insider. He's got a bunch of people backing him, including the head of the Cook County Democratic Party, the head of the Democratic Party of Illinois, big names like Chewy Garcia, a bunch of aldermen and county commissioners and suburban mayors. And as Danny knows, commercial real estate interests are no big fans of Fritz. And they have been casting about for an alternative to him for some months. And it looks as though they've got one. So things are about to get very interesting for Fritz. Initially, I was just interested in the story. Even before he had a challenger, there was a rumor challenger just to see what different ground he was facing. And now it's getting it's getting a lot more interesting, even though the primary is kind of far away. So that challenger is Carrie Steele, the head of the um, Water Reclamation District. What would you say are the advantages and disadvantages that she has over him? Uh, Advantages. She has the support of uh, a lot of building trade unions who are also angry at, at Kagi for what they perceive as his commercial assessments dampening downtown investment, which in turn hurts their ability to get jobs for their workers, basically folks in the construction industry. Um, They're a powerful union. They've got money. They've got foot soldiers that can go knock doors for her. She also has the support of uh, Jesse White, who is one of the best known and most popular uh, statewide elected officials. She also is a woman of color and Democratic voters are more and more excited about electing women of color to office. She's a good campaigner. She has run successfully countywide since 2012 and run for a technocratic office, much like the assessor, where you have to make a thing that most people have never heard of. And when they do hear of it, they think it's boring. She's managed to convince people to to vote for that office instead of skipping it entirely. And folks say she's going to line up other people. She has Jesse White, first and foremost, which is big a big signal, but I think she's going to win support from a a lot of other uh, Democratic committeemen. And potentially, if she keeps up the kind of early indications of the way the campaign is going to be going, she could get a lot of money from commercial real estate interests who are very keen on kicking Fritz out. 
What about the complexity of property taxes? I guess that's the way to ask that, right? I mean, what role do you think that'll play with voters? Because I remember when he first started rolling out his reassessment, there was uproar. Yeah. And and a lot of people... That has continued. <laughs> right, right. And our colleague, Albie Galoon, I was with him on the radio and he was saying, well, there's a difference between your assessment and your bill and you have to, you know, be mindful of that. But I think on some level that might fall on deaf ears. How much of that murkiness or just kind of complexity do you think will play out with voters? A ton. Yeah. My editor, Joe Cahill, and I talked about this a lot. The question of will people look at their bills and be satisfied and give Fritz credit, be dissatisfied and hold it against Fritz? Can Carrie Steele come in and and muddy the waters and say, Fritz is the reason why your bill is doing this or that? And will he be able to defend the reforms that he's making in a way that is understandable to voters? Because it's very complex. Right. It's a, it's a discussion of shifting burdens of like the weight of the property tax system. What people understood about what Joe Berrios was doing wrong was it was unfair. It was beneficial to rich guys who were gaming the system already and better at this than uh, normal guys. So it was like a simple, this guy is corrupt and this is the other guy running. Mm-hmm. And this other guy running seems competent enough to get in there and fix some stuff. And now it's, I have to explain the complicated process of the assessment system. It runs on a triennial basis. The valuations I pick are supposed to be as close to the sales price as possible. Here are the capitalization rates I'm using to arrive at that number. Like, it's not stuff that fits nicely into a 30-second commercial. We're going to hear him saying over and over, I've made assessments more fair and accurate. But if Carrie Steele gets in there and says, no, take a look at this example in the South suburbs or this example in the West suburbs, things could get very murky very quickly. I'm curious what Danny thinks about the the challenge that he's facing and whether there is an easy message that commercial real estate interests want put out into the world that convince voters that Fritz is bad. The biggest thing that is going to be in the way of any challenger to Kagi, in my opinion, is that buildings don't vote. I mean, that's kind of the <laughs> right, right. kind of cliche, really, in, in the world, in the circles I, I'm running in with, and talking with people. And that's kind of like, oh, well, that's why he's doing this, because homeowners are going to feel really good about everything he's doing, and they're the ones that are going to reelect him. And th- there's there's limits to that, right? Because I think the, the big impact, not just on landlords, but when you have higher taxes on commercial properties is for office buildings, these are these this are just these are costs that are just passed along to companies. So Chicago has, you know, long had an advantage over other similar sized and, and similar stature cities in terms of this is a place that you have uh, labor that's uh, more affordable, easier to retain, and the cost of doing business in Chicago is way cheaper than it is in some, at least on the coast and other other major markets. And that's kind of what we're chipping away at here with higher assessments is, you know, people kind of laugh when you ask, when you tell them what, what the taxes and operating expenses are that you have to be in your office building in Chicago compared with other cities. You know, it's not like New York and San Francisco, but, but it's, it's up there. Um, and, and yet people still make the case that our rents overall are still fairly, fairly low. So I think that's the question is, are, are, 
are, are will will these alone or assessments in combination with other things keep companies away? And is that does this does that even register with people? Right? Do, do people say, "Well, I'm I'm a little afraid that what he's doing is going to scare off jobs." You know, that's that's like the biggest question I think for him, and and it's a really hard thing to run against. I, I think that is his that's a big challenge for him. And then also, they they definitely screwed up the COVID adjustment that they made for suburban homes they thought i heard that from a lot of folks yeah they they said it as much they they made an adjustment saying okay we're going to adjust the assessments of north suburban homes down but then it turned out that home values went up during covid so that's i think one of those things that people might say well you know hey do they know what they're doing but you know at the end of the day and i don't want to defend anybody here but to be fair this is a very hard time to be valuing property of any kind this is a really hard job they have, and right. it, it seems like I mean one of the one of the issues I've heard uh, come up with a lot of different landlords is that they don't like how quickly he's done this. Right, they want it to be more small steps, small steps, so that there's not some sticker shock where one year you're paying this and then one year you're paying thirty percent more, whatever it is. All right, so does does someone want to bring in someone totally different and have another kind of shock for what they're going to do? I mean, I. That that might make the case, yeah. Right, and we have not we have not yet heard from Carrie Steele. I, I I spoke to her earlier this week, and I said, "So what exactly is he not doing right? Is it the model? Is it uh, cap rates?" And she said, "You know, it's a matter of transparency. There's a lot I'm not going to know until I get in there, which is not terribly specific, especially if you're a commercial real estate person to be like, well, I don't know what this person's going to come in and do." And Fritz's defense to the things happened too quickly, he should have phased this in, is that the system had been wrong for so long that that was the run-up. That was the run-up to the to the changes. That's what he said he would do. And I don't know if people didn't understand it at the time. And maybe me as a reporter who covered him back during the campaign, it took me a while to put together that fixing this system meant shifting more of the burden two commercial landlords. Like that took a while for me to put two and two together that fixing this would be a big shock to commercial real estate. And it happened and they're ticked off. Now they have not publicly taken a position and my colleague Greg Hines thinks that some other people might hop in this race if people smell blood in the water. And we got some polling this week that showed pretty low name recognition for Fritz and some movement on his unfavorable ratings based on what messaging you use. And one of the messages was describing him as kind of a Wall Street insider based on his past work. So kind of questioning his progressive credentials by saying this guy's a a Wall Street guy. Can you trust a Wall Street guy? So I'll be interested to see what messages stick. And like Danny said, buildings don't vote, but building people have money. And if there's another message that comes out that is easy for folks to glom onto, this could get really sticky very quickly. Yeah, I have a feeling we will be talking about this topic many times between now and the the primary. How many people I talk to who are like, I'm going to be watching this one really close. I don't know if it's just nerds that I talk to, but they're like, this race, Secretary of State and uh, the governor, whoever comes out on top of this Republican primary in the, in the gubernatorial race, those are like the big three. For sure. Well, it is now the time where we switch to three stories, not on your beat, that caught your attention. What you got? 
fire away, AD. No. I can start if you guys need a Yeah, minute. you start. You start. I thought it was very interesting how EU regulators have uh, made some demands for all smart devices to have a universal charging port. So they would all have a USB-C. So that would be smartphones, tablets, speakers, video game consoles, everything would have. And it's uh, an idea of like to reduce waste. Um, I, I think that'll be interesting. I mean, I feel like anything related to technology, European regulators are usually a couple of years, if not more, or not, you know, ahead of us. We, we, it takes us a while to catch on. Um, but I think that's just an interesting story that uh, I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, yes, that would be very handy if we had one charger for all of the things and not 16 old chargers sitting in my drawer that I don't know what they do. Well, and like the big move that Apple made to like switch up the headphone jack. Absolutely. Hated that. Yeah. So Apple right away kind of said, oh, this would really harm innovation. But I mean, they have this, right? They get, what, 50 bucks from us every time we need a new charger, right? So they were immediately like, oh, no, 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 this would harm innovation. So we'll see how that goes. My other one is um, some development engineers at Northwestern published an article in Nature about the smallest ever human-made flying structures these tiny, I'm fascinated by the story. These, they're micro flyers. They're, it's like a microchip and it looks like how small are we talking? Well, that's the beauty part of this. You, everyone Google this. Northwestern released some photos and video of insects interacting with this thing. It is the size of a ladybug's head. <gasps> and there's a, this beautiful photo of this tight shot on this ladybug looking at it. The, there's one of an ant looking at it. So it looks like if a butterfly had like a third wing. So it's like a little clover. It's tiny. But it this little tiny device, uh, it, so they said it was kind of inspired by how seeds scatter in the wind. Uh-huh. And it could, in theory, like monitor pollution levels and like track airborne diseases. And this is reminding look- me of when they made like robot bees. They were like, if all the pollinators right. die, we're going to need a pollinator. So we're going to make some robot bees. Right. These could, in theory, like disintegrate or biodegrade when they hit the ground. They could have antennas, but they also could be used for population surveillance. So some privacy folks are like, hold on, this is smaller than like, this is is smaller than a grain of rice. And this is a cute little thing, but hang on, we could all be what? So it's a fascinating story. And and the, um, the article that the Northwestern engineers had in Nature was really fascinating. But the pictures of this of insects interacting with this thing and there's one with like it's right by the head of a pencil it's so interesting and then the other story that i thought was really interesting um ad was your story about guaranteed basic income pilot i thought that was such an interesting story just to see it's really catching on yeah and i feel like even two years ago people have been like nah, that's a little far-fetched but it suddenly it feels like there's a little support for it here and there i also think covid seeing a bunch of people get straight federal checks and how stimulative that was for the economy. And yes, there were instances of fraud, but I think people have fundamentally rethought work as part of identity and welfare during crises. So I did, I did that story. And then as I was reporting that story, I called, this was about Chicago's basic income pilot. I called Cook County and I was like, hey, you guys did straight cash payments early on in COVID. And they're, tell me about that. And they're like, we did it and it was great. And now we're thinking of doing a basic income pilot too. Fascinating. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's so interesting to it's me. catching on. All right. Who wants to go? Those are all more interesting than all my stories. <laughs> I doubt that. Come on. Uh, well, I mean, okay, well, okay one, micro flyers are hard to beat. Yeah, but. that's that one is. Mm-hmm. 
My compiler is very cool. For me, uh, Rahm Emanuel made th- almost $13 million over the past couple of years. Oh, yeah. I, like, I saw that and I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. He's, he's only been out of office for, what, two years? I mean, maybe a little more. Two and a half. I, that, and there were sometimes at that story where they were breaking down all the ways, all the money he's gotten, including like 300 grand from ABC News to be a contributor, which, you know, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised by that, but. We picked the wrong business, pals. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just pretty remarkable how much money uh, he could bring in. And um, anyway, so that was one on my list. Uh, the other one was, you know, the ongoing back and forth regarding the Bears and Soldier Field and City Hall. And Mm -hmm. there's so many moving pieces to this and and Arlington Race Course. And the the stories this week, I mean, there's a couple of them. WBEZ had a story where they they showed some some email interaction between the Bears and the Chicago Park District. Some of the most passive-aggressive emailing I've ever seen. Yeah. 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 Big time. Which is, I think, to be expected from the Bears, I would say. But... This, you know, because the story, if those who didn't read it, I mean, it was basically that, you know, the Bears are pushing for, they want to, you know, have the rights to be able to have gambling at Soldier Field. You know, that's one of many sticking points um, that is, that makes the Bears threat to leave more real. Um, And then the Sun-Times had a story where they talked to Dirk Lohan and they talked to to architects saying, hey, you know, you, you can't really expand this stadium much, you know, based on the way it was built and, and. Um, you know, the, obviously the historical nature of the columns. And I, I do think though, that that one kind of misses the point, which is that the bears don't want to expand this. I mean, they would like to expand the stadium and put a dome over it, I'm sure. But what they're really wanting to do if they're going to stay there is, has more to do with, you know, use of the area around the stadium and being able to yeah. develop some of that. And as opposed to just, Hey, let's add more seats. That was something I, I didn't, uh, I didn't realize I, I, when I talked to Neil Bloom for a story I did on sports betting and the Chicago casino um, rush street is like the official gaming partner of the bears. And I was like, what does that mean? Does that mean they want to launch a sports book there? And he said, no, um, it's hard to get to. It's not a place that people want to hang out. There's only a certain number of games all year. And I know that's something they want is like a more interactive team experience or like a little museum and gift shop and, a bunch of other stuff attached, which they just can't, they can't really get over there. Right. It's tough. It's a, it's a tough thing for the city to be able to even meet what they're probably looking for. We don't know what they're specifically looking for if we, if, you know, but we've, they've hinted at doing things in the past and there are, there are ways that they could uh, do a lot more and make a lot more money in Arlington if they, if that ends up actually being where they, they move if they, if they do. Um, so anyway, I, that was an interesting one this week, just kind of continuing to watch that. And then the other story, uh, which is more just personal for me because I, these headlines get my attention these days, was uh, the Tribune had a story about nannies being able to kind of call the shots now because they're so in demand and there's this shortage of childcare workers. There is definitely, as someone who has a four and a two-year-old that are both in daycare, there is a very big, important shortage of childcare workers, of, of you know workers that there's the turnover in daycares. Um, the difficulty of, of finding a nanny, someone to watch your kids. I mean, this is sort of this quiet, and maybe it's not that quiet because people are talking about it, but this is a really big challenge for people who have young kids, you know, and, and, and finding childcare, especially if anyone who, you know, there's the, there's the, the stimulus check impact, right. Of people saying, well, 
if they're getting money, then they're not going to work if they don't have to. But there's also just the safety thing. And, you know, kids aren't vaccinated. Do people want to be around a bunch of unvaccinated humans um, all day? And, and I think that's still going to be a very tough thing for, you know, that, that, that is in between us today and people getting back into offices uh, more frequently is is childcare. So I just think that was an interesting story. And I think that's it's getting a lot of attention, but maybe not even enough. Yeah, maybe not. Those are good three. AD, what you got? Similar to what we were talking about earlier, New York Times had a really interesting story. It was kind of like a an essay and then a collection of resolutions about how people are thinking differently about work because of COVID. So people who are like, this is, I'm no longer treating work as my identity. I'm no longer staying late as opposed to hanging out with my kids. I'm no longer driving for Uber ever again. There's no dignity in it. Like just how people are approaching work completely differently, having worked through a pandemic, uh, very worth reading. The other one that I loved was Ali Murati's TikTok story. Mm -hmm. Uh, She and I talked about it a few weeks ago because I, one of those lame millennials that downloaded TikTok during COVID and just became obsessed with it. (laughs) And she was like, I wonder if there are any Chicago restaurants or small businesses that just went completely viral on TikTok and were just inundated with new patrons or customers. And I was sending her like 50 links of like Chicago bars and restaurants or cool installations or museums that I had seen on my TikTok. And she instead turned it into the story about kind of what a blessing and a curse TikTok virality can be, especially if you're a small business. If you have like some little enamel earring company that has a post that gets like a million views, uh, you could be flooded for like a month with business and then it could just disappear. These kind of trend stories come up whenever there's a new social media platform. I know we've talked about restaurants that specifically focus on making Instagrammable dishes. Mm -hmm. So like people stand on top of their chairs and take a picture of the food and put on Instagram. So just like uh, the way people are dealing with social media fame and how a certain number of views might translate to a certain number of sales and how unpredictable it could be. It was just, it was a really good story. And then I'll close on um, Lita Powell Drake. She hosted a, a local access entertainment show and there's a super cut video of her that went viral a while ago talking to a bunch of celebrities in, like, probably the the 80s. From here to the Rocky Horror Picture Show to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in Amadeus and out of Bill Sykes and Oliver Twist meet the star. Tim Curry, do you realize this guy has cost me a fortune? And her interview style is just so hilarious and direct that I quote it all the time. Tim, I had to buy all this stuff for my kid. I had to buy the Rocky Horror Picture Show album. I had to buy the books. I had to buy the scripts. I had to buy the t-shirt. I had to pay to go see you on Broadway. You're a very expensive date. I know. Mom. I know. Goodness, have you? Is this why you, is this a votive tribute? I did this just for you. You know how long this took? What, what I went through for you, About two minutes. Tim, <laughs> no, no, the CBS makeup people took it's, almost an it's, hour. It's we looked delightful. At your, we looked at your pictures. The amazing thing about this guy is he comes on as a loony. He really does. An evil loony in so many of the things we've seen. But he's a, a gentle, a gentle man. He's a, he's a crashing bore. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> people don't do interviews like that anymore. She's just like so to the point, like asking people why shows ended or like, why didn't you take the part in this thing? And whatever happened to this or this movie was a giant flop. I'll tweet, I'll tweet it out again. But like, she was a legend and, and she passed away recently and she'll be missed. She's in like the, the broadcasting hall of fame in her state. I've never seen anyone interview like she interviews people. It's, it's wonderful to watch. And I, as a journalist, I'd like to take a little bit away from it. Maybe just her boldness. So RIP Lita Paldrake. All right. Well, thank you both. Appreciate your time. And we will talk again soon. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, lawmakers consider removing a big roadblock for cannabis companies. We'll talk about that and more right after this. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. President Joe Biden will make his first presidential visit to Chicago in the week ahead. The White House says to, quote, highlight the importance of COVID-19 vaccine requirements for businesses. Mayor Lori Lightfoot said at a news conference she was excited that the president will be visiting and also announced a city goal to have at least 77 percent of Chicagoans receive their first COVID shot before the end of the year. Earlier this month, President Biden said he'll order all executive branch employees, federal contractors and millions of healthcare workers to be vaccinated against COVID and that his administration will issue rules requiring large private employers to mandate vaccinations or testing. The president's visit also comes as local businesses still struggle with vaccine requirements for both workers and patrons. Though Mayor Lightfoot issued a mandate for city employees to be fully vaccinated by October 15th, she's not yet reached an agreement with local unions to meet that deadline. The biggest pushback coming from unions representing officers within the Chicago Police Department. The Cook County Board has approved a new legislative map. It's similar to the old one, but with some lines adjusted for black population loss. Crane's government reporter A.D. Quigg has the story in detail. Here's A.D. Quigg again with the story in detail. Without much fanfare, the Cook County Board has approved its own maps, the district boundaries that dictate which commissioner represents what town or neighborhood. The Cook County Board has 15 Democratic commissioners and two Republicans. All 17 members of the board sponsored it and voted in favor of the map on Thursday. At first glance, it hasn't changed much from the map that's been in place since 2012. There are still five majority black districts and three majority Latino districts. But boundaries did have to shift a tiny bit to account for black population loss across Cook County. The low-key vote at the county is a big difference from the debate in Springfield over maps for the General Assembly. Those are being battled in court. The Chicago City Council is just beginning to gear up for their own remap debate. League of Women Voters did log their opposition to the commissioners drawing their own maps. They implored the board to let an independent body draw boundaries after the next census in 2030. 
U.S. household net worth hit a new record in the second quarter as Americans enjoyed an optimistic stock market and the largest ever increase in the value of their real estate holdings. A Federal Reserve report out on Thursday showed that household net worth increased by $5.8 trillion, or 4.3 percent, to $141.7 trillion in the second quarter. And that included a $3.5 trillion gain in the value of equities and a $1.2 trillion improvement in real estate held by households. Stocks have also hit record highs and low borrowing costs have supported an uptick of home buying and ultimately home price appreciation. Net private savings grew at an annualized pace of almost $2.9 trillion in the second quarter after a $4.8 trillion surge in the prior quarter, a result of federal stimulus efforts. And savings have been an important driver of consumer spending, including last quarter, where consumer spending jumped at one of the fastest paces on record. However, not everyone is benefiting from those wealth gains. A large share of Americans are not invested in the stock market, and for many renters, the sharp rise in housing prices pushed the reality of owning a home even further out of reach. Consumer credit outstanding, not including mortgages, rose by $91.2 billion in the second quarter. Business debt outstanding increased by $63.2 billion from the prior quarter or at a 1.4% annualized rate in the April to June period to a total of nearly $18 trillion. And government debt has also gone up during the pandemic, as policymakers stepped in to ease the economic impact of the health crisis on people and businesses with trillions of dollars of support. The government is also currently on track to default on its financial obligations without congressional approval to raise the statutory limit on U.S. debt. The U.S. House of Representatives will soon vote on a bill that would let banks do business with cannabis companies without fear of penalty. The so-called Safe Banking Act got picked up as part of broader legislation, and its inclusion in the National Defense Authorization Act was approved by voice late Tuesday. It remains to be seen whether the bill will pass the Senate, but the act would be a helpful step for cannabis companies, which so far have been held back by the need to deal in cash due to federal restrictions. And that has meant they have extra security costs and logistical problems, even as marijuana increasingly becomes legal. The initiative, which has been passed by the House before with bipartisan support but has never advanced to the Senate, is still far from all the legal reforms sought by the industry, which includes all-out legalization as well as tax relief. Are you or do you know a high-performing mid-to-senior-level leader looking to enhance your leadership acumen in new ways? If so, then Cranes Academy is for you. You'll break out of your routine, exchange insights with thought leaders, and discover innovative ways to impact positive results immediately. Fall virtual sessions start on September 29th. Visit cranesacademy.com today to learn more and apply or nominate. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to both of my guests, Crane's reporters Danny Ecker and A.D. Quigg. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist because that's the best way for others to discover our episodes. You'll also find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.